I'd like to give you an insight into the connection between calm and insight. Because I believe that, first of all, it isn't clear. And secondly, I still think that it isn't quite apparent that there are two streams of meditation. Samatha and Vipassana. Vipassana is not a method. It's a goal. It means insight. There are many methods. I think it's very important to know what one is doing when one is meditating because otherwise I don't think there are going to be any results at all. So there is samatha and vipassana. Samatha means calm and vipassana means insight. And there are 40 methods taught by the Buddha and there are other methods besides those 40. And the method isn't the samatha nor is it the vipassana. The samatha or the vipassana arises out of the method. When we have a recipe and we put the ingredients together, that isn't the meal yet. First we have to cook it and then eat it and then we've got a meal. The same with the method and with samatha and vipassana. The method is the recipe. And we put that together and then eventually we might be able to actually swallow that. And as we swallow it, we get the results. Samatha culminates in the meditative absorptions called jhana in Pali. Since that's a nice short word, we might use it. Meditative absorptions is almost too long to be used. And Vipassana culminates in nine stages of insight and eventually in total liberation. The meditative absorptions have eight steps. Now, insight is sometimes divided into twelve, sometimes even into eighteen. The main thing is nine that we can more easily remember. Obviously, it's not useful at this point in time to discuss all stages of insight or even to detail all stages of calm. I think we can be utterly contented and satisfied with a first stage of calm and a first stage of insight. If we do have a first stage of calm, the frustration disappears and usually some urgency arises, the urgency to actually carry on, do it, practice. And that's also the function of the first stage of calm, to arouse interest. Now, I've already explained that first stage. It's called piti, and that it brings with it also a very definite insight. Now, Insight always means either impermanence or unsatisfactoriness or corelessness or substancelessness, or you can call it non-self. It doesn't matter what we call it, just so we know in the end that there's really nobody there who's knowing anything. If we get any of that 
any of that insight, that's a, called vipassana. Sometimes it's mild, and sometimes it's strong. Sometimes it changes one's whole approach to one's life. And sometimes the mind isn't ready, sees it quite clearly, but doesn't draw any conclusions from it. Now that we see impermanence quite clearly is evident, but that we draw hardly any or no conclusions from it is also evident. Otherwise, mankind wouldn't be running after sensual pleasures. Nothing could be more impermanent. We draw no conclusions because the mind isn't trained. So we train the mind in meditation and we get a more alert and a more one-pointed mind. That one-pointedness and alertness is also the purification aspect. And I think I, it's important to at least mention the five factors of meditation and the five hindrances and how they relate to each other. Because when we deal with our hindrances and are able to minimize them, to lessen them, we have more of a chance for calm and insight. They are the debris that's covering it over. We have as the first step for meditation, the initial application to the meditation subject. That initial application is the antidote against sloth and torpor, laziness and drowsiness of the mind. Every time the mind is drowsy, doesn't want to do anything, gets off into fantasizing, dreaming, avoiding, when we put our attention on the meditation subject again, we are counteracting that tendency of the mind. Some people are beset with that tendency very strongly, others don't have it so much. Everybody has a little of all the five. It's very helpful to find which one of the five hindrances is our strongest enemy so that we can deal with it. Loss and torpor of the mind is intrinsically connected to greed. We don't like the way things are. We'd like to have it more pleasant, and so we avoid or dream or make things up. The next step in meditation is continued application to the meditation subject. Vitaka Vichara in Pali, Vitaka initial Vichara continued. Continued application to the meditation subject means nothing other than staying with the breath or staying with the sensations or staying with the loving kindness, whatever subject we have chosen. That counteracts skeptical doubt. The doubt which is very erosive. The doubt which says, I'll never learn this. I can't do this, other people might, it's not for me. How will I know that that really makes me happy? How can I know that the Buddha really knew what he was saying? All the kinds of ideas which run around in the mind and stop one from practicing. The only way we'll ever find out is when we'd actually do it. But doubt is a blockage, a very strong blockage, which stops our trying and practicing. And because we still believe what we're thinking, we're justifying the doubt. 
had we meditated longer and more, we would by now know that there's nothing to believe what we're thinking. It's just views and opinions. But if one hasn't meditated very often and not very for a very long time, one is apt to believe what one is thinking. That also stops one day. One knows it's just a thought. It makes life so much easier. So if we have skeptical doubt, it's very difficult to continue to practice. And we get this often on affair. Now, skeptical doubt only completely disappears with the first step into an Ibanic experience and it completely disappears. But if we can actually stay on the meditation subject, it is minimized to the extent where it's no longer stopping us from practicing. Now, both of these initial and sustained or continued application to the meditation subject are features of any meditation, whether concentrated or not, whether an absorption or an insight, it doesn't matter. They have to arise. The continued application then makes it possible that we cross the threshold into our inner being and have the experience of the delightful sensation which counteracts anger and ill will. I've already mentioned that anger and ill will is the hindrance which most people find most annoying. They can't help themselves to get angry but when they're we again rid of the anger they're annoyed at themselves and one doesn't feel good so those people who have a tendency to get angry a lot and often are usually those who practice most diligently because it is a very unpleasant feeling within Anger is something which is human nature, but we don't have to keep it or continue it or justify it. The meditative practice helps us to smooth it out and eventually the insight makes it disappear. But that's quite a ways. The next factor of meditation which arises together with the delightful sensation is joy or happiness. Now that is sort of a companion to the delightful sensation quite obviously so because when one has delightful sensation joy or happiness have to arise as our natural response that particular aspect of the meditation counteracts our restlessness and worry and agitation our restlessness and worry and agitation are due to the fact that we haven't got what we want. If we had what we want, we wouldn't be restless. And here, having joy, inner joy, the restlessness is counteracted and the worry. Obviously, they arise again when we get out of meditation, but at least we have an automatic antidote. And, as I've already explained, we know during our daily activities that we can return to the home of the mind 
so that our agitation, restlessness, worry is not quite as corrosive as it would have been without it. To be able to smoothen out these hindrances without the help of the meditative process is such a Herculean task that it's hardly likely that anybody can do it. But with the help of the meditative process of the concentrated absorption, one has a great head start. Restlessness and worry are compared by the Buddha to being a slave. They push us here and there, and they do. People are far too busy. In fact, most people are so busy that they claim they have no time to meditate. Which is, of course, just the wrong way around. Because if they would take the time to meditate, all that restlessness, which takes up a lot of our energy and consumes a lot of time, would eventually, gradually, get minimized and time would no longer be a problem. So we usually start at the wrong end. We start in the worldly, at the worldly end and say, well, there's no time for anything else. If we were to start at the other end, we would find that there's plenty of time for everything. Time is arbitrary anyway. You may have noticed that you have sometimes a meditation session which seems to pass very quickly. And other times you might have a meditation session where you think the bell ringer must have fallen asleep. <laughs> That's strictly due to one's own concentration. Time passes very quickly when we're concentrated. So time is totally arbitrary. We just make something out of it because we have invented clocks. And they are useful in order to make appointments. And that's about all they're useful for. Being a slave to restlessness and worry is known to everyone. And the antidote in daily life is to learn more about the Dhamma, to know more about it, about the teaching, and also to be together with wise and mature people who will remind one of what's important and what isn't. Now this, these two, called piti and sukha, delightful sensation and joy and happiness, are results of the concentration. There's a fifth factor, which is one-pointedness. And that again is a factor which arises in any meditation. If it's a very unconcentrated meditation, it arises only very briefly. If it's a concentrated meditation, it stays with us. But one-pointedness is something that is part and parcel of all meditation practice. So we have three factors, initial and sustained application and one-pointedness which are part and parcel of all meditative processes. And then we have two factors, the delight uh, and the joy, which are results of the concentration. One-pointedness is an automatic antidote against our desire for sensual gratification. When we're one-pointed on the meditation subject, we can't think about what time is lunch, whether we could move and the knee pain might go away, whether it'd be better to have a sun bath instead of meditating, we're meditating. But if we're not one-pointed, any of those thoughts can easily arise, and many more. So one-pointedness works automatically against wanting something else. 
So it automatically removes dukkha at that time because dukkha comes about through wanting. That may already explain quite clearly why concentration automatically brings happiness. I mentioned when I explained dukkha to you that we have three main cravings and the first one of that is the craving for sensual gratification which is an outcome of our craving to be here craving for existence these are the underlying cravings of course they um, result in all sorts of desires but underlying are those two they are the basics and it's very helpful that if we do want to investigate into our own desires to investigate to the point where we can find either one or the other the Buddha compared the craving for sensual gratification to being in debt we are in debt to our senses because the sense, the sensual gratification doesn't last, so we have to renew it all the time. And if we don't do something about it while well, we're still well and can meditate, we're going to have the same happening on our deathbed, where it's very difficult to gratify the senses, to say the least. There are many discourses of the Buddha that talk about how to deal with our sense contacts. And maybe one of them we could use in our daily life, namely to be aware of the sense contact and notice that the contact creates the craving that if we don't make contact the craving is usually not even existing now we could make contact with thinking about it so again we have to watch our thoughts but we also make contact with seeing something or hearing something tasting something touching or smelling if we don't make the contact it's much easier not to have the desire and we can also notice that the desire arises out of the contact so that then brings us to the injunction of the Buddha to guard the senses not to look at everything and to hear everything and to try to know what goes on everywhere the more we do that the more distracted we become, the more essential desires will arise, the more difficult it becomes to be one-pointed. It's called papancha in Pali. It's a word which actually sounds like what it is. It's a multiplication of variety and the whole of nature has that aspect and we are very much into it everywhere to have more and different things if we get one pointed in the meditation it's an automatic antidote and the other antidote in daily life is to guard the senses to be aware, to become aware of how our craving and desiring actually arises. And then if we see that and let it cease again, it's very gratifying to know that one doesn't have to run after every desire. One isn't the slave to it any longer. These five, three of them, features of any meditation, two features of the first jhana, are the antidotes, 
which we get through meditation against the hindrances. The hindrances of sensual desire, ill will, sloth and torpor, restlessness and worry, and skeptical doubt. It is useful to find out which one of those hindrances is the strongest within oneself so that one can use the prescribed medicine. This is one of the aspects of not only meditation but the meditative absorption. But there is far more to it than that, namely the insights which are bound to arise from the experience. Now the insight which is bound to arise from the experience is an absolute knowing of impermanence. If we don't pay attention to that, we are again experiencing it without having any result from it, without having any benefit from the experience. I've already mentioned this, that at the end of any of these absorptions, we're at the first one at the moment, there are three steps to be taken. The first one is to see the impermanence of the very delightful sensation which one would like to keep and have and see how it dissolves. It's an um, important aspect of recognizing the dissolution of everything that exists when that which is dissolving is something we would like to keep. When we see that that which we don't want anyway dissolves, we are quite satisfied. And we don't take great notice of impermanence, or we say, well, it's a good thing that it's impermanent. And that's the end of that insight. But when that which we want to keep is equally impermanent, and dissolves equally quickly, as everything else does, then it may make a greater impact. The mind might actually latch on to the understanding that there's nothing in the whole of the universe that we can keep. The mind might see that within ourselves there is nothing that's solid. The mind might actually have an inkling of what impermanence really means. It means, in the last analysis, that there is absolutely nothing that we can hang on to, nothing we can hold on to, nothing that is solid, nothing that has any base for anything or anyone. Everything is in constant flux, moving about, renewing itself, but constantly changing because it has moved. Just look at our planet. It's constantly moving. Even though we have the optical illusion, it's standing still because we're sitting on it. But we all know it's constantly moving, at very high speed, too. And not only that, everything else is moving. The universe is constantly contracting and expanding, and so are we. If we get a feeling for that, we have less of a solidity idea about ourselves, and less clinging to all the rest of the stuff that we think is solid, like other people, or our ideas, or our plans, or our hopes. We try to make all that very solid. But when we see that we are just as in flux as the universe itself, being part of it, 
that there's nothing stationary anywhere, even though the optical illusion tells us it is, then we get a totally different perspective and we move towards liberation. Our optics are not very excellent. We can't look around a corner. We can't see beyond the horizon and we can't see ultraviolet light, which bees can see. So if we only trust our optics, we are extremely limited. And that's what humanity does. And we're limiting ourselves to a point of such boundaries that it becomes extremely difficult to look beyond them. And because it is so difficult to look beyond these boundaries, the meditative absorptions give us that push, that initiative, because it's our own experience that the boundary we have made to our mind and body is totally untrue. And only when we experience that ourselves do we actually know it. And it isn't that difficult. It's a natural way for the mind to go. Patience and perseverance will get everyone at least to the first meditative absorption. Our first insight is the impermanence, the lack of stability. Now when we see the lack of stability in our own experience and in ourselves, then we're not trying so hard anymore to make that stable and permanent which cannot be made stable and permanent. Everything that we know and that we have. Our second insight which will arise from this very first meditative absorption is the understanding and the realization that all we're really looking for already exists within us. And as we find that, we will also find a different mind and body experience, which is very insightful. We know our body to be the way it feels right now, solid and heavy having all sorts of problems and touching and very often uncomfortable. That's the way we know our body. And we're concerned with it and try to make it feel better. And if we don't feel well, that's the right thing to do. But one day we'll probably wake up to the fact that getting older is something one can't stop and therefore making the body feel better is an absurdity. We can give it medicine when it's sick and I hope you all have some medicine. <laughs> to help with the coughs and the sneezing. <laughs> but that's about all we can do but when we have a meditative absorption the very first one the body experience becomes totally different and we realize that it's due to the mind being totally different the mind is absorbed it's one pointed and it's experiencing the light delightful sensation. At that time, the body doesn't have 
the heaviness, doesn't have the pains, it doesn't have any of the problems, it doesn't even have its contours. Now that's a very important insight to know that our body consciousness is due to our mind consciousness. And if we keep that in mind and take that with us into daily life, it should help us. It should help us to take the aches and pains of the body not so seriously. Because we know we can get back to a state of being where the body consciousness has dissolved to the point where there is lightness and lack of boundary. Just being in the first meditative absorption. All of these things are extremely helpful in the perspective we have on ourselves and the world around us. That's another thing that happens when we get into the absorptions. We've been talking a bit, a fair bit, about loving-kindness and compassion. And I'm sure we all agree it's a good thing to have. But we might also agree that it's not always easy, that uh, there are certain blockages. Well, having been a human being without the meditative absorptions and then being able to either touch upon them or really get into them, a very definite understanding arises, namely the understanding that although everybody could do it, people aren't even trying and are not having this enormous relief from their everyday worldly consciousness, which makes compassion arise. The compassion is automatic because it's out of the question that one could feel different or separated when one realizes oneself has been in the same state as everybody else and now is able to touch upon a different state. Anyone who's ever been able to do the absorptions, to do the jhanas, would have compassion enough to try and help others with them in some manner or form. So we again have another result just from the very first meditative absorption. But the second one is immediate because, as I said, joy and happiness arises at the same time as a delightful sensation. And so, after having been able to stay with the delightful sensation for a good chunk of time, 15 minutes, let's say, without looking on the watch, any good chunk of time, not just momentary, we deliberately drop our attention on the delightful sensation and change the mind to paying attention to the inner joy. Knowing that physical sensation is still a gross experience, whereas the inner emotion is a little more subtle. As we progress with the meditative absorptions, they become more and more subtle. They start out with the grossest berries, the physical sensation. And that is, again, a cause and effect progression. First, there's concentration, results in delightful sensation. Delightful sensation results in joy and happiness. And the Buddha's instructions are to deliberately go from the one to the next, knowing it to be more subtle. Most people experience the joy and the happiness in what is called the spiritual heart, the middle of the chest. Some people are helped 
to experience it by seeing the word joy to themselves. Others can easily move from one to the other and some people don't find the joy and move on to the third one. It's very important to experience the inner joy. If that should have happened, that one would have experienced the next one, one needs to go back to the joy. At this time, we are dropping initial and sustained application <coughs> to the meditation subject because we no longer have to start and we no longer have to try. We are absorbed. One does hear noises, especially loud ones. They are not as uh, corrupting the peace as they would be without the absorption. One has a feeling as if one were sitting under a glass dome and outside of the glass dome the noises go on. So one doesn't become involved with them, but one can hear them. In the beginning of practice, there are also occasional thoughts. That's no problem. Occasional thoughts don't, no, don't disrupt the practice. They are fleeting and disappear by themselves. So we are left with the background of a delightful sensation and the foreground of joy. Again, that brings important insight with it. If we don't use the jhanas for insight, we're only going halfway. If we're only having or trying to have some insight without any calm, without deep calm, we're only going halfway. And as I said before, it's a Herculean task, one which really seems beyond our capacity. But with that, as a foundation, there's no reason why we can't progress from one step to the next and losing more and more of our dukkha. The insight which arises from the joy is a, very, is a definite understanding that we don't have to look for anything outside in the world. We've got it within. The joy which we experience is of um, a sweeter nature. It has more quality to it. It is more fulfilling. It has the kind of feeling about it that one can bathe in it. And knowing that one is independent of others' emotions and independent of outer circumstances provides already a measure of freedom which then releases one from looking for appreciation looking for support, looking for any worldly help because we can now help ourselves. Looking for appreciation is a kind of um, inner restlessness. Many people have it and it always creates dukkha. If we do get the appreciation, we have a moment of sukha, opposite of dukkha, a moment of happiness. And then we have to look for it again. And very often, we don't get it, even though we think we ought to. And why don't we get it? Because the other person also wants it. And they're far too busy trying to get it too. And by wanting it ourselves, we forget, of course, the other one wants it. And so we have two people looking for appreciation, and neither one is getting it. 
it's a very common, an all too common difficulty. When we experience joy <clears throat> within ourselves, we don't have to look for that anymore. We got what we wanted. And it's an automatic understanding within that all we've been searching for, looking for, restlessly trying to attempt, none of that has brought the same quality of joy within our heart. There are different words in Pali for worldly joy and spiritual joy. In Pali, worldly joy is pamoja. We can have joy in this world. We enjoy the sunshine. But it's a different kind of joy. The spiritual joy is called sukha. And it's sweetness. It's an inner sweetness. And also, when we get that, with all the things we might have done in the past that we didn't really like to do, that we now see have been wrong, or with all the unfortunate experiences we all ha we have had, still, within us, there is this sweetness and joy. It can be found. All it needs is concentration. Everybody's got it. And that alone makes it possible to have loving-kindness for oneself. And as we learn more and more loving-kindness for ourselves, we obviously have more and more for others. A person that feels sweet within, and it's the best word I can find to describe that feeling partially can love and can love without causes because the feeling within generates loving it's the easiest way to live harmoniously it's the easiest way to live happily it's practically automatic once we get the meditation established. We don't have to try and try again. Once the meditation is established, that's what happens. And obviously, we need to live harmoniously and happily if we actually want to progress on this path. In the super-mundane, depend-arising, the Buddha delineates several steps which have to come before meditation. And the first one is to recognize and realize one's own dukkha. And the second one is to gain some confidence in oneself and the teaching. And the third one is to have joy. That's the worldly joy, the joy of being able to practice. And then, as one starts to meditate, one has a head start. And then when the spiritual joy arises, one can stabilize that. Without joy, meditation is an impossibility. Because if there's grief, if there's anger, if there's resentment, if there's rejection, all of that creates turmoil in the mind. Finding this aspect within oneself changes one's outlook on oneself and on the world. One knows that this is a potential. The potential is there. Most people never realize that potential. But then we don't realize many of our potentials. And so this is just one of them that we don't realize. And yet again, 
with the experience comes the compassion that others are without that inner joy and because of that of course their life must be difficult even though there is worldly joy at times and compassion is automatic we don't have to try so hard the third one which is a result of the second comes about when we let the joy deliberately go in the beginning people find that difficult because now they finally found what they were looking for now they're supposed to let it go but an intelligent mind knows one has to carry on so reluctantly we let go of the joy and we realize that the joy is still fairly gross because the delightful sensation and the joy have a certain excitement to them and the mind knows quite well it wants peace so we don't find it all that difficult to drop the joy and the mind goes towards contentment having had joy the mind is contented and that contentment brings with it peacefulness now out of that we learn a very important lesson one which we need to carry into daily life with us because it's an insight which can eventually liberate us completely the insight which comes from that is that there can only be contentment and peacefulness if there are no wishes having had joy we don't have any wishes we don't want anything else we've had what we've been looking for and so we can drop into a contentment and a peacefulness which is quite embracing and drop is the word for it because it feels as if the mind is going downward whereas before it was up here somewhere enjoying what was happening but now it goes down and settles it feels more settled it's at the has a feeling of being encompassed by peacefulness experiencing contentment within through the meditation is a totally new experience for everyone we have never had that kind of contentment where there's absolutely nothing in the mind that says what now what else what next why how when where who nothing of the kind there's just peace and having experienced peace one knows that that is what human endeavor is all about joy and peace within without outer conditions it's possible having experienced that peacefulness obviously that too is impermanent when we get out of meditation but it creates an understanding within us that we have it it's possible and that the only peace there is there isn't any other we don't have choices that people finally make up their minds not to have wars finally abandon atomic warheads finally don't kill each other anymore we don't have those choices peace is within and when we experience it we know it and then when we know that we know only when we don't want anything and then we have proven to ourselves the first and second noble truth that dukkha arises out of wanting and here there's no dukkha there's only contentment so one automatically takes that 
understands into daily life, not wanting, not looking for, not constantly trying to find something other, but trying to find within oneself. The three characteristics of the universe, impermanence, dukkha, and non-self, or corelessness, substancelessness, are all possibilities for total liberation. And having seen dukkha clearly, the doorway to liberation is called wishlessness. If we have understood dukkha from an inner realization, then we can go through that doorway to total liberation through wishlessness. This third meditative absorption gives us a taste. It's certainly not liberation. It has really nothing to do with Nibbana, but it's a taste, and it's a pathway, and it's a smoothing of the way, and it brings our daily life into a context, not only of spirituality, but also of being at ease with whatever happens not being upset, angry, worried, rejecting, but at ease, because we know it isn't the outer world, it's the inner world that counts. You can see that each of the meditative absorptions brings new insight. I think I'll let it go at number one, two, three. First of all, because of time restrictions. And secondly, also, because there's no point in burdening the mind with things which have no practical application yet. But you can find the others explained in my book and that might be helpful to carry on the connection between calm and insight should be clear and it should also be clear that the depth of insight does not arise ever without the depth of calm it's just not possible there has to be depth to the mind state. So if we are still on the surface of calm, we will get insights on the surface. And as we get those, that helps us to become more calm. And as we become more calm, the insight become deeper. And again, that helps us to have deeper calm. So they work hand in hand, and they help each other. And as they help each other, we see things in a different way. Insight is always connected to those three characteristics. And if we get any insight at all, we will see that underlying it is one of the three impermanence or dukkha or corelessness. It says, for instance, fear. Well, that's dukkha, isn't it? And we can inquire into the fear. It's very helpful. If we can't drop it and can't substitute it, we should inquire into it or into agitation or whatever it is that bothers us. But let's take fear as an example. Inquire into it and ask, why? What am I afraid of? 
and the answer is a new question. Until we get one day to the bottom line, which is always ego, but we have to get there ourselves. It's no use having it written out like an answer and knowing, well, that's what it is, and not inquiring. Because only when we get there ourselves does it have any meaning for us. On the way there we will find a lot of answers. So if there's any kind of emotional state or mind state, that's very difficult to let go. Inquire into it. Why am I having it? And then if the answer is because so-and-so did such-and-such, then the next question is, why can't I forgive? And find out what the answer is for that. As long as we're concerned with outside causes, we can't go inside. But everything that we've ever wanted exists within ourselves.